and welcome to the Unsolicited Film Reviews Podcast. I'm Zach Miller. And I'm Martin Cook. And this is part two of our 1950s podcast. We hope you joined us last time because if you're just joining us now, then you won't have any context. So go back and listen to the first one right now. Today we're going to be covering Rebel Without a Cause, 12 Angry Men, Vertigo, Some Like It Hot, Ben-Hur, and then we're going to do some other fun segments that you know and love if you've been following us from the beginning. Martin, start us off with Rebel Without a Cause. Okay, so Rebel Without a Cause is a Warner Brothers film which premiered October 26, 1955, less than a month after the death of its star, James Dean. It is produced by David Weisbart, it was written by Stuart Stern, and directed by Nicholas Ray, all of whom were relatively new to the industry, having started making films about at the beginning of the decade. And that, in addition to young stars James Dean and Natalie Wood, meant that this was really a passing of the torch type of movie, with none of old Hollywood being really involved in this movie at all. So let's talk about James Dean, since he's the major part of this movie, and also since this is the last time we'll get to do so in this series. James Dean had studied some acting, but was in college at UCLA when he started getting acting parts, his first actually being in a Pepsi commercial. So he decided to drop out in early of 1951 and pursue acting full-time. He struggled a bit at first and ended up doing side jobs to help pay the bills, but eventually he began getting TV roles. He finally appeared, finally, it was a pretty quick rise, he appeared (laughs) in his first major feature film, in East of Eden in 1955. The film made him a pretty big name, and he was nominated for his first Academy Award for it. Unfortunately, it was a posthumous nomination because he died in a car crash in September of that year, just before Rebel Without a Cause, the movie we're about to talk about, came out. He starred in only one other film, Giant, released the following year, for which he was also nominated for a posthumous Academy Award and won his only Oscar. So his was a brief but absolutely brilliant career. This movie, Rebel Without a Cause, was nominated for three Academy Awards and is 59th on AFI's Top 100 Movies list. What is it about? The story is about a teenager named Jim Stark who arrives in a new town after in a new school in Los Angeles, after having moved around a lot because he keeps getting into trouble at, at school and in the former communities where he's lived. He finds out in this new town that he has a hard time fitting in with the cool kids. And so in the meantime, he becomes friends with another kid who is even more of an outcast. But he also starts becoming close to the girlfriend, played by Natalie Wood, of the leader of the cool kids gang. (laughs) (laughs) And so when he tries to prove his worth by taking part in this ridiculous game of chicken, where two guys try to drive cars off of a cliff and then jump out just in time before it goes soaring over the edge, the other driver dies, and it leads to James Dean's character trying to hide out from both the police and the violent gang of the other kids, along with Wood's character and their outcast friend. Eventually, obviously, as you can probably tell, Things crash in on them, and it leads to a big conflict at the end. The the movie has a number of uh, very important, uh, or sorry, very notable uh, elements and 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 speeches and and dialogue. But here's one particularly famous part 
showing James Dean angsty at his best. You're lying. I never hit you. You are tearing me apart, Lisa. Whoops. That's from the immortal and incomparable Tommy Wiseau from 2004's The Room. Let me throw it back, flip it in reverse, sit to James Dean. Kid hasn't got any friends. Hey, well, tell and him we why moved we moved here. It. Will you hold it, Jim? Tell him, why, tell him, man, why we moved here. Will you hold it? You can't protect me. Do you mind if I try? Do you, do you have to slam the door in my face? I try to get to him. What happens? Don't I buy everything you want? A bicycle? You get a bicycle. A car? You buy me many things. No, no. no. Well, not buy just buy. We give you love and affection, don't we? Well, then what is it? Was it because we went to that party? Well, you know what kind of drunken brawls those kind of parties turn into. It's not a place for kids. A minute ago, you said you didn't care if he drinks. He said a little drink. You're tearing me apart! What? You you say one thing, he says another, and everybody changes back again! That is more or less Rebel Without a Cause. What did you think of it, Zach? Yeah, I, I wasn't as impressed as I thought I was going to be. Uh, this is the first James Dean flick that I've ever seen. Uh, I think I'd be better off watching Giant. But uh, I, I don't think we could have had a 50s podcast without putting at least one James Dean movie in there because he is such just a cultural icon. And Rebel Without a Cause is the first movie that comes to mind when you think of James Dean. First of all, uh, he just looks way too old to be a high schooler, and you know I'm not gonna I'm not gonna split hairs there because every high school movie stars like 25 to 30 year olds, so that wasn't my major gripe. Yeah, and he was what but, about 24 at the time when they I think made this so. movie. I yeah, think. and but. Also, I did not buy him being an outsider for one second because in spite of me being a heterosexual male, I just found him to be one of the most handsome movie stars I've ever seen between the blue eyes and the chin dimple and everything. He just has that star quality that you look for in a generational talent. And he would clean up at any high school (laughs) anywhere. So, and the leader of the gang, Buzz, was just like this plain old guy. So, yeah, I didn't buy that either. I thought James Well, it didn't, it didn't take that long before Natalie Wood's character started warming up to him, to be Yeah, that's, to another, be that's another one of my gripes, though, is that this whole story takes place over, what, like 18 hours? <laughs> is that that fast? I guess, yeah. yeah. I guess it is pretty quick. Because yeah. even, uh, yeah, even in the end, they're like... Uh, uh, what's his face? Uh, Plato. Like, yeah, I met him earlier this morning, and uh, Plato already <laughs> wants him to be his dad. <laughs> like, there's a lot of weird shit going on here. Uh, I thought, in principle, it was really good. I thought it would have made a better play than a movie, though. I was surprised when I saw that this wasn't a play. And uh, I thought James Dean did a bang up job, though. I thought he was really good. I think it's tragic that we never got to see like him and Brando together or anything like that because he was kind of on the same trajectory before his untimely death. And yeah, I think uh, obviously this is a James Dean vehicle, but 
As far as like the coming of age story, oh yeah, yeah, forgot to mention uh, Dennis Hopper <laughs> had a little role in this too. As a uh, as goon, as he what didn't even have goon? A name. Yeah, yeah he was credited as goon. <laughs> so <laughs> one of but, the uh, one of the rich kids gang or something. Yeah, I was glad I watched it. There were some good monologues. And, you know, teenage angst in the fifties. This is really when it came to a head. You know, white suburban kids with every advantage given to them still have problems. But uh, yeah, those are my overall thoughts. I think I liked it a little more than you did. It for me, especially compared to everything else we've seen on this list, it everything about it seems young. It's mm. it's sort of the first movie about youth and growing up and about teenagers who don't really feel like they belong. Yeah, whether or not that's realistic that somebody like James Dean doesn't feel like he belongs. But what what it was really one of the first movies that I think we've seen where that's the overall theme and they feel like their parents don't understand them. And there's been a movie, million movies like this over the past half century, especially starting in the 70s, movies like American Graffiti and, and all the others. But this is definitely one of the first like that. It has that kind of classic dad speech about how nothing that happens in, in high school is all that important. And But James Dean just doesn't think he understands because, of course, to somebody who's in high school, everything that's happening in that moment is the most important thing of all time. Right. Here's a little bit of, about that, of that speech by the dad as well. But I am involved. We are all involved. Mom, a boy, a kid was killed tonight. I don't see how I can get out of that by pretending that it didn't happen. Well, you know that you did the wrong thing. That's the main thing, isn't That's it? That's nothing. That's that is absolutely nothing. Dad, you told me. You said you you want me to tell the truth. Now, didn't you say that? You can't turn it off. Well, he's not saying that. He's saying just don't volunteer. Just tell a little white lie. You'll learn when you're older, Jim. Well, I don't think that I want to learn that way. Well, it doesn't matter anyway because we're moving. You're not tearing me loose again. Well, this is news to me. Just why are we moving? Oh, do I have to spell well, it out? I'm not going to use me as an excuse again. I don't. Every time you can't face yourself, you blame it on me. That is not true. You say it's because of me. You say it's because of the neighborhood. No. You use every other phony excuse. Mom, I just once I want to do something right. And I don't want you to run away from me again. So again, that kind of speech has become a bit of a trope and, a, and something that we've seen a million times. But this is one of the first kinds of movies that I can re- recall those themes really playing a major role. And, and yeah, and, uh, uh, yeah uh, Jim Backus, who played Frank Stark, uh, his dad, was oh my god he was so tra- I felt I felt worse for him than I did for James Dean honestly because God he was just so emasculated and in, uh, for for a guy in the fifties to be wearing an apron for half the movie especially in those times was the most emasculating thing you could possibly do to him and show on film other than actually literally cutting his balls off <laughs> exactly. <laughs> There were so many characters in this movie that just had serious issues. I mean, none, none mm-hmm. more so than 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 Plato, obviously. Who, as as you said, that very quickly after meeting James Dean, he's kind of like, "Will you be my daddy?" I mean, it's not quite that bad. Yeah, but I know, I mean, these are yeah. these guys are supposed to be 
in the same grade at school or, or at least in the yeah. same school. And all of a sudden he's looking up at James Dean and Natalie Wood and, and wanting them to be his, his surrogate parents, basically. It's really creepy and weird, but it's, it's kind of a movie about that. Just these people with really fucked up issues. Yeah, and, and, and poor Natalie Wood was not so subtly raped over and over again by her dad. And that's a, that's a, Dark, dark place to yeah. go, especially in uh, 1955. Exactly, exactly. I mean, that was really disturbing. I was cringing. I did not think any kind of subject matter like that was even allowed to be hinted at at the time, and it probably wasn't. I don't. I think it was approved by the uh, the uh, motion picture code, but uh, just the implications there. Yeah, they were three really fucked up kids. Yeah. I, I think, though, you can see, you as you were mentioning about Dean and, and Brando, you can see why James Dean was such a star. He just has, just like Brando did, kind of this effortless charisma to him. Mm-hmm. There's, there's, He has that, a bunch of times, that little giggle that kind of <laughs> escapes that <laughs> is kind of weird but charming at the same time and and definitely yeah. something unlike we would have seen actors do before that because it's just this natural little tick that his character does and so that's that's just part of part of his performance and so yeah he's he's very brando like in many ways and it's great watching these films back to back just to see what kind of actor was taking over acting in the 50s mm-hmm. it's also unfortunately obviously one of these great what might have been questions? I mean, what kind of career might James Dean have had? Could he have had a Brando-like career? Probably not, just because potential is never fully realized, or very rarely, sadly, in life. But uh, but I think it's an open question, actually. Yeah, and I could totally see James Dean being that jaded, cynical Marlon Brando type in his later years. I could have seen him packing on another 150 pounds and just being like... I'm tired of being a heartthrob. I just want to chill in my, you know, Sunset Boulevard villa. And you know, if a movie comes along where I don't have to read the lines and yeah. they'll pay me a couple million dollars, and I just have to sit there and be a blob, <laughs> then I'll do it. So I could totally see, him, I could totally see him taking that same trajectory because he was that quintessential quote unquote tortured soul that you know is so attractive. It's a, it's also such a movie of its time, but it's it's mm-hmm. really wedded to the fifties. This uh, time when cars were everything, and life really just revolved around all these people in the cars, and the time when society was changing so much, people didn't really know what their their place was anymore. It's really, a, a really wedded to to that time period. So it's a perfect movie to be looking at in in a series like this. And one other note. The reappearance of the mansion from Sunset Boulevard. Yeah. <laughs> which is pretty cool. <laughs> Unfortunately, apparently the, the, the mansion was torn down a couple of a uh, couple of years after the filming of this movie. But it That's lives on shame. at least in those in those two famous movies, both of which situated in the wrong place in Los Angeles. I think the mansion was actually up in Beverly Hills somewhere. And in this right. movie it's somewhere off to the east of of the Griffith Earth Park. And yeah. in Sunset Boulevard, it's actually on Sunset Boulevard, but neither of which is correct. But still, it's it's pretty cool to see that a reappearance of that mansion. <laughs> yeah. 
So then, that takes us to 12 Angry Men in 1957. It is a courtroom drama directed by Sidney Lumet and written by Reginald Rose. It stars an ensemble cast consisting of Henry Fonda, Lee J. Cobb, who was Johnny Friendly from On the Waterfront, Ed Begley, E.G. Marshall, and Jack Warden, among others. It's a simple yet really powerful story about 12 jurors who deliberate a first-degree murder case. An 18-year-old Hispanic kid from a New York slum is on trial for his life for the murder of his own father. Eleven of the 12 jurors think the case is cut and dry, with Henry Fonda being the lone holdout. From there, the heat turns up, both figuratively and literally, as these 12 angry men pour over the evidence and argue over this young man's life. One by one, Fonda's character convinces his fellow jurors that there is enough reasonable doubt to acquit the young man of the crime they were ready to send him to the electric chair for. It covers themes of justice, racism, prejudice, and the ability for one man to change things for the better in the face of seemingly insurmountable odds. It wasn't on the original AFI 100 list, which is shocking to me, but it's now number 87. Henry Fonda's character, juror number 8, is number 28 on the top 100 heroes. It's also the number 2 courtroom drama behind To Kill a Mockingbird. It was nominated for three Oscars, including Best Picture, but lost all three to The Bridge on the River Kwai. Thoughts? It's just a great movie all around. I think above all, it's it's one of the most brilliant scripts ever written, in my opinion. Just the way it's paced, how the tide gradually seems to turn as the jury comes around from guilty to not guilty, to each of the characters with their own personalities and backstories and how each of those things informs the decisions they make along the way and the way they react to each new piece of information or each argument, to you know its examination of the flaws inherent in prejudice and bias in a justice system that's meant to be blind, and then to cap it all off, make it the hottest fucking day of the year, and the fan in the jury room isn't working. It's just just add tension. <laughs> it's just it's just a brilliant film in my opinion. Yeah, uh, I totally agree. This is probably the fifth or sixth time I've seen it overall, and Henry Fonda is just an amazing actor. We saw him before in the Century series in uh, Grapes of Wrath as Tom Jode, and the way he's just like the. Uh, the the moral stick that just will not budge in this movie is fantastic. Although he says he's willing to budge, which makes him even that much better. Then that's the that's he, he exemplifies the potential of greatness that the American justice system has when you don't have all these uh you know, people that are out for public vengeance and, you know, like they want to be vigilantes as a juror. And he he represents the definition of reasonable doubt. It's never clear whether the kid was actually guilty or not guilty, but that doesn't matter because if there is a reasonable doubt, you have to acquit the person. Yeah, Henry Ford. He's obviously the the the, the, the Henry, Ford, Henry Fonda. Sorry, <laughs> <laughs> yes, different Henry F. Uh, he's 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 actually really the only one of of this cast that's that's a real lead actor. 
But what an mm-hmm. amazing cast of character actors they threw together from this. Right. Just all of them from from Juror 1 to 9. Seriously, just go and take a look. Everybody's listening. Go and take a look at the IMD pages of IMDb pages of all these actors. From 1 through 12, every one of them, you have to keep scrolling and scrolling just to get through their credits. Like every single one of these actors had a very long and successful career as character actors. And to throw them all together in a room like that, just an amazing cast. Yeah, I think this is the first time in our Century series that we've actually done an ensemble movie, a true ensemble movie, where, you know, like you said, every actor has limitless IMDb credits from top to bottom. And the fact that it only takes place in three scenes, basically, if you, well, okay, four. You got the courtroom, the juror's room, the bathroom, and outside at the very, very end. But like an hour and a half of this movie takes place in the jurors' room, and to have that uh, boiling kettle of all these personalities just you know ready to explode at any time, I've never seen a movie with so much suspense, with so much star power, all taking place in that one room. It is absolutely a damn near perfect movie. Yeah, I agree. If it. If this was a TV show, we'd say it was the greatest bottle episode of all time. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's for just sure. so contained, but the way they use that to add to the tension is just incredible. And shout out to the director too, Sidney Lumet. I mean, Twelve Angry Men, Failsafe, Serpico, Dog Day Afternoon, Network, The Verdict. Damn, what a career that guy had as a director too. Yeah, I will not be surprised if we wind up talking about him in the future. <laughs> probably not. Probably not. I did love the. Uh, the, the the prototype Don Draper character, that <laughs> I think juror number 12, he's this ad man. He's his, oh, right, right, right. He's, he's totally the prototype Don Draper if, if Don Draper <laughs> had been a little happier. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think it's also really interesting that in this movie, as well as the one we just discussed, uh, Rebel Without a Cause, psychology is starting to play a big role in stories. Like oh, the the stories aren't, they aren't just about people doing things. But there are stories that are interested in explaining why people act the way that they do. And that's perfectly encapsulated in that part where they question why this witness would lie. And then the old man goes on his explanation about how he knows this man perfectly well. And this is why somebody like that would do what they do. And so I, I just I thought that's interesting. I, I guess maybe there's a rise in in popular culture of psychology at that time. And it's certainly making its way into, into film scripts and stories. Yeah, absolutely. And it's, uh, yeah. And that even goes to the, uh, the, the woman who we never see, but is talked about because she's one of the primary witnesses. And was it, was it the old man that noticed the, uh, the, in, the indents on her nose? I think so. Yeah. Yeah. The, yeah, the old man's so. uh, definitely the, the unsung hero. Henry Fonda's character is the main hero, but the old man who is the first to switch his vote, and he definitely points out a lot of the interesting flaws in the arguments as well. He's great. Yeah, because, I mean, as a person that wears glasses, I can't read subtitles on a movie if I'm watching it from six feet away. So for, uh, that that was really interesting. Like I, I pick something up every time that I watch this movie, and... Yeah, for the old man to point out that this woman was 45 trying to look 35 and they 
portray all the witnesses as people that have never been recognized for anything, and this is like their only shot at being publicly recognized. It's not going to be. It's not going to mean fame for them. They're not going to wind up in the papers or anything. But this is their first time in the public eye, and they want to make the most of it. And so, this woman, you know, dressed in clothes to make her look ten years younger, and. She's not worried about this kid's life. She's not worried about the trial at all. She just wants to look her best in front of her her audience, so to speak. Yeah, it's the first time people and, are paying attention to them, and they've they've got a captive audience as they're sitting there in the witness stand, and and what that could do to to how a person reacts in, in that situation. Yeah, it points out so many flaws in the American justice system because you know when you think. Oh, 12 people, a quote-unquote jury of your peers. <laughs> yeah, all 12 white men. Well, they weren't all. I guess there was one Hispanic guy and one Italian immigrant. But uh, aside yeah. from that, <laughs> they're all sort of white, uh, English-speaking American men, <laughs> not exactly a jury of your peers for most people. Again, another flaw in the system. But I guess that's what juries looked like in 1950s. Yeah, and it's not far, so far off from today. I mean, it's, it's why I personally don't believe in the death penalty because the justice system is so flawed and you hear about people you know that have been in prison for 20 years getting off on dna evidence that wasn't even heard of 20 years ago happens far too often been, yeah and they could have been easily executed for their crime that they didn't even commit just because there are so many people on juries that feel like they want to be the one to swing the axe at the end. Like once you get on that jury, you feel like you're finally important. Yeah. And, and so you, because everybody feels some sense of injustice in their lives and now they feel, Oh, they can dole out justice finally to somebody else. Right. It's, yeah, it's, exactly. it's a little, yeah, it's, it's a, a scary a, element of, of any trial by jury system for sure. Yeah. And obviously the main example of that is Lee J Cobb, who, played the the juror that was the very very last to hold out i can't keep track of all the jury numbers but the the guy that played the gangster in on the waterfront but yeah he was the very last to hold out we finally learned the the reason why is just because he has so much resentment for his son who he physically abused and kind of hates himself for it and doesn't want to admit it and at the very end he's the last one to turn and I thought this was a really powerful moment, and I'll play a clip of that f- right now. You lousy bunch of bleeding hearts. You're not going to intimidate me. I'm entitled to my opinion. Rotten kids, you work your life out. Yeah, so that's right after he rips up the picture of him and his son together, and yeah, it's a it's a really good performance by him. I think he 
kind of seals the show because uh, I mean Henry Fonda is amazing, but he's kind of stalwart and doesn't change through the whole thing. We never really see him break or show any actual real emotion. Yeah, he's kind of the the straight man, and it's not a yeah. comedy, but he's the straight man, and everybody else is sort of the the wildly differing personalities around him. Yeah, and I love the I love the um, the guy that just wants to get to the ball game and how flippant he is like he just wants to go with the majority there's a really good cross-section of humanity shown within these 12 people there's every kind of personality type i also love the guy that never sweats until he's finally proven wrong and the little uh the little weasley guy with the glasses it's just like well i don't really agree <laughs> and, and everyone just shits on him all the time yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, it's a great cast of characters. It's, uh, like I said, a perfect cross-section of humanity, and that's what makes this movie so great. Totally agree. So great. If nobody has seen it before, you absolutely must see it. Definitely, this is this is a must-watch. And it's not, you know, it's fairly short. It flows great, so definitely go and check this out if you haven't seen it before. So let's move on then to Vertigo from 1958, our first Hitchcock movie, finally. It <laughs> uh, premiered May 9th of 1958. It was distributed by Paramount Pictures, but Hitchcock basically had his own production company at the time. So it was a Paramount uh, pr- Pictures movie, but really it was a Hitchcock movie distributed by them. I, th- I think a, a side note is is warranted here because one of the problems of trying to provide an overview of entire decades in filmmaking is that some directors and maybe actors don't get the emphasis that they deserve. And this is certainly true with Hitchcock. We didn't have him in the 40s. We're only doing one of his movies in the 50s. And depending on uh, what we get to actually know, I think we've chosen our 60s movies. We probably won't even get to it for, the, for Psycho in the 60s. So... All this to say, don't let the format and criteria that we're using to choose these movies make it seem as though we're underselling the importance of Hitchcock as a filmmaker in movie history, because he is right. We're just trying, yeah, we're just trying to do a nice, you know, eclectic list. Because I mean, we could have easily done Rear Window or North by Northwest or a, a number of other Hitchcock movies, but we're trying to, you know, we're trying to spread out and do different genres. This isn't the AFI list. This isn't our top 100 films. This is just trying to take you guys through a journey through time and give you a little taste of each person. Exactly. So Hitchcock, undeniably one of the absolute giants of film. And so the fact that we're only doing one film by him, don't let, don't let that fool you. We, we recognize his importance in, in film history. <laughs> So, back to Vertigo. Vertigo stars Jimmy Stewart and Kim Novak. It's based on a book called uh, D'Entre les Morts by French authors Pierre Boileau and Thomas Nachejac, I think is his name. Uh, Hitchcock had previously tried to buy their, their previous book, which was made into a film called Les Diaboliques, a film that actually ended up being remade later on in an English version, English language version. But he couldn't get the rights to that one. And so he was so interested to see what they would come up with next that when they came out with this new book, Paramount had a a synopsis written up for him 
right away, even before the book was translated into English. And, mm. and Hitchcock snapped it up just because he obviously loved the, the wavelength that these, these writers were on. Hitchcock originally wanted actress Vera Miles to play the femme fatale role, but she was unbelievable because, uh, unbelievable, she was unavailable, sorry, uh, <laughs> because uh, she might have been un- unbelievable. I'm not sure if I've ever seen Vera Miles in, in a film. And she was un- unavailable. She, she was pregnant at the time. So uh, he, he reluctantly cast Novak instead. And apparently the two never really hit it off and for whatever reason. And even afterwards, even though it's one of her most famous roles and one of his best movies, Hitchcock still wasn't entirely pleased with her performance for some reason. I'm not quite sure Mm. why that is. Anyway, the story of of Vertigo. It's it's somewhat of a it's it's somewhat of a film noir. The story is that after retiring as a policeman because of a severe case of a fear of heights and vertigo, after one of his colleagues falls off of a building to their death. Scotty Ferguson, that's Jimmy Stewart's character, agrees to help a friend solve the mystery of his wife, who he thinks is being possessed by the spirit of a long-dead relative. After trailing her for days and several encounters, Scotty, of course, as in this kind of movie, eventually also falls in love with the woman as he tries to find a way to cure her. (laughs) Convinced that the best way to do this is to take her back to the site of one of her supposed memories, she ends up killing herself while jumping off of a tall tower, and of course he can't do anything to stop her because of his fear of heights. So from there, the plot gets even more interesting, and there's a big twist. And if you haven't seen this movie, even though it seems ridiculous to have spoiler alerts uh, <laughs> after more about 60 years after the movie has come out, I won't tell you what the twist is exactly, except just to say that... The the big twist happens, and then there's still another about 40 minutes left in the movie. So it really becomes a different kind of movie and much more of a film noir than what it seems like for a lot of it, which is almost a supernatural tale. So, Zach, what were your impressions? Yeah, I had never seen this before, but I really, really liked it. I always thought that uh, Rear Window would be the best uh jimmy stewart hitchcock collaboration but i think i actually like this movie better if i'm being honest i i never saw that twist coming i didn't either actually no oh this is your first time too yeah yeah i thought i had seen it before but then as soon as i started watching it i realized no i haven't seen that i I don't know why i'd never seen i could have sworn that i'd seen it but definitely hadn't yeah, uh, I thought uh, Kim. No- I thought Co- Kim Novak was incredible. I don't know what Hitchcock's talking about, but uh, he notoriously has always had a contentious relationship with women in general, and especially his lead actresses. He always kind of treated them like shit. <laughs> but he got great performances out of everyone from Grace Kelly to Kim Novak. So I mean, you gotta do what you gotta do, I guess. Uh, yeah, I thought the um, the age difference was a little bit problematic <laughs> between uh, Jimmy Stewart and Kim Novak. A little bit. Because uh, they actually age her up in the movie because she was 24 when this was being filmed, but they the character is 26, and Jimmy Stewart was 48 at the time of filming. <laughs> so and that was a little weird, but you know that that was the sign of the times, and you know everybody loves Jimmy Stewart. I'm not gonna I'm not gonna <laughs> malign him for that. 
But, uh, yeah, I thought this was a fantastic film. I thought it kind of dragged in parts because we spent about 30 minutes just watching Jimmy Stewart drive around San Francisco. But, like I said, I never, ever, ever saw that twist coming. Uh, by the way, the twist is that Kim Novak actually didn't kill herself. It was all a ploy for Jimmy Stewart's uh, shipwright friend who hired him to kill his own wife and replace her with Kim Novak and seduce Jimmy Stewart and convince him that she's mad. And, yeah, it's it can get a bit convoluted when you're trying to explain the whole plot, but it actually works really well when you watch it front to back. Yeah, I agree. And I think one of the things it does really well, a lot of mystery movies, especially these days, would basically end it right there where we, where we see the twist and we find out, Oh, oh no, right. we didn't, we didn't, but there's still a good, a whole final act after that about these two people, because she's sort of fallen in love with him, with him as well. But they're so damaged that they can't quite figure out how to love each other because they're both still kind mm-hmm. of lying. And I thought that made for a really interesting final act to the movie that a lot of mystery movies would just cut it off once you find out the twist. And, oh, my God, she didn't actually kill herself. It was all set up. Uh, but they, they kept going and explored, okay, so what would happen next? I thought that was that was an interesting part of the movie. Yeah, me too, because I thought the movie was just about to be over because this isn't one of the ones where I'm checking my phone or checking the, the runtime, seeing how much is left because I was so enthralled. But, yeah, when, once once the, the twist was revealed, like you said, we go into this, it's almost like two movies, and Jimmy Stewart gets really, really creepy here. Oh, yeah, he <laughs> yeah. definitely does. Like, really, really fucking creepy. <laughs> He's trying to turn this poor girl. Well, she's not, you know, she's not this poor girl. But from what, it, from his perspective, he's trying to turn this poor girl that kind of looks like the girl he was in love with into the girl he was in love with. Like he will Before not stop knowing that they're until, one and the same person. Yeah, yeah. He, he will not stop until her hair is perfect, her dress is perfect. And she just kind of goes along with it, which is also really creepy. <laughs> it is weird, but at the same time, again, it's just because they can't quite bring themselves to tell each other the truth, but they still kind of want to be together. But it, yeah, it's just a really fucked up relationship. I thought uh, on on that twist, apparently Hitchcock wanted to take out the scene where the character of Judy writes the letter and basically explains mm. the whole plot twist. And he just wanted to go into it and then, so you wouldn't really know that she's the exact same person until the very end. But the studio overruled him and said, no, no, we have to keep that in there. What what do you think? Would it have been better with or without that scene? That's interesting. I didn't know that because it seems so Hitchcockian to show us the twist before the characters know what's going on because that's dramatic irony at its finest. And, you know, Hitchcock was always the guy that said, when the audience knows there's a bomb under the table and two people are sitting there, that makes it so much more interesting and suspenseful than if the two characters already know there's a bomb under there and it just explodes. And for the audience to know something that the characters don't, 
has always been right up Hitchcock's alley. So I'm surprised that he that wasn't his first instinct. Yeah, I'm, I'm not quite sure why, but I guess maybe it makes maybe it makes some of that 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 activity by Jimmy Stewart's character even more creepy and stuff. It almost makes mm. that relationship even more bizarre because, as you say, he's trying to make her like this person who she isn't, and she's just going along with it. Whereas it's it's almost somewhat more understandable when you realize that she's one and the same person as as the person that he's trying to make her into. It's, it doesn't make it that much less creepy, but if you didn't even know that, I think then then you're really going to a dark place with these characters. So maybe that's what he was going for? I don't know. Yeah, I think it was unsettling enough as it is. And I mean, the audience... Well, <laughs> actually, there were a lot of a lot of audience members that didn't know that that was Kim Novak because they're so easily fooled by just a hair color change, change hair. and yeah. the removal of the of the the mole on her face. But yeah, I thought it was uh, very brilliantly done, and I'm glad we chose this over some of the other Hitchcock movies because I think this is uh, you know we. I think Jimmy Stewart and Hitchcock had a great relationship and I'm glad we chose this one over rear window because I think rear window is more widely seen. Although vertigo is more widely acclaimed. Lauded. Yeah. 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 Yeah, and, And when you were talking about all those scenes of Jimmy Stewart kind of driving around San Francisco and following her in his car, first of all, he shot it in such a way that really made old San Francisco look beautiful. Just oh, yeah, so absolutely. many different great buildings and and just the way he shot it was amazing. And also, since we're 50s, talking about cars <laughs> from before, that green Jaguar Mark 8 or 9, whatever it is, that, that Kim Novak is driving around the whole time, man, is that a beautiful car. Yeah, that Damn. is a sexy automobile. <laughs> <laughs> Also liked how trippy some of the scenes were, especially like the opening sequence where we're just zooming in on Kim Novak's iris in her eye, and she never blinks the entire time, and the credits are like flying out of her eye. I thought that was really cool. I did think it was kind of silly when uh, Jimmy Stewart kind of had his flashback episode when his face was like popping up on this on onto the screen like a like the bat signal <laughs> from the Adam West show. and uh his like his little cuz he was going bald at the time and his little hair tufts were like swirling in the wind <laughs> i thought that was a little silly but yeah it was yeah, like a weird was, little drug trip sequence almost or something yeah <laughs> it was, yeah it was i thought that was bizarre. super trippy with this but, weird like yeah. animated part added to it yeah and i thought the Whole, the, the only part that I was really confused in was how he got out of the the nut house. Oh, okay. I, I thought you were going to say, yeah, the nut house I can't explain. I did have a question, though, for you, because the, the whole be- the beginning part, where Jimmy Stewart's dangling from the rooftop at the beginning, is that is that all in his head? It is. Uh, does he ever actually? Because they don't adequately explain how he could possibly have gotten off that roof, and so is the rest of this all just sort of and and everything that happens after that 
the rest of the story is all kind of about people falling to their deaths. So, so is the entire movie just uh, a figment of Jimmy Stewart's imagination as he's dangling off that roof? I don't. Yeah, I did. <laughs> I wasn't thinking about that when I was watching it, but after doing a little bit of subsequent research, I did see that theory, and it it makes it interesting. I don't know if it's true. I don't know if I necessarily agree with it, but again, there are some plot elements that don't necessarily add up. So it could all be a, a like a kind of a hallucination by Jimmy Stewart's character because he's like completely catatonic in the mental institution and then a couple scenes later he's just out with no explanation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and for me it's that that first part that stuck as I was watching it, I'm like, wait, wait a minute, how the fuck did he get off that roof? He's dangling from his fingernails from this yeah. rain gutter, basically. And, yeah, I, I don't know. It's, it, I guess it doesn't need to be all in his head, but it's definitely something that I considered as I was watching it. Right. All right, so now on to Some Like It Hot, 1959. It's yet another Billy Wilder joint, but this time it's a comedy. It's a romantic comedy starring Marilyn Monroe, Tony Curtis, and Jack Lemmon. It's a farcical laugh riot about two musicians, played by Curtis and Lemmon, who, in an effort to escape the clutches of mafia gangsters, dress in drag, join an all-women's jazz band, and hightail it to Florida on a train. Things get complicated when they run into Sugar Cane, played by Monroe. They both want to snag the platinum blonde bombshell, but not at the risk of blowing their cover. Hijinks ensue. That's basically the plot. This film is interesting. (laughs) This film is interesting in a number of ways, but it was really notable for being made without the approval of the motion picture production code. It was one of the first code breakers because of its depictions of homosexuality and cross-dressing. Despite this, Some Like It Hot was a massive success, and it's widely considered to be one of the final nails in the coffin for the draconian and archaic Hayes Code, which we went into massive detail in one of our previous podcasts. Yes, so so long, Hayes Code. Yep. He had a pretty shitty run of Peace almost out, three bitch. decades. It was nominated for six <laughs> Oscars, winning one for Best Black and White Costume Design. It's number 22 on the AFI 100 list of Best Films of All Time. What were your thoughts, Martin? It, it it kicks off with such a bang it, with basically the greatest speakeasy <laughs> of all time. <laughs> I just love how it, that scene develops at the beginning with the funeral parlor and the organist <laughs> who's playing somber music, and then he pulls a lever and the secret door opens, and all of a sudden we're hit with the you know tune of Sweet Georgia Brown and everything's <laughs> everything's going crazy and the dancers. Everything about that was fantastic. I loved how the movie kicked off. It and overall, I I, I really enjoyed the movie. I will say one thing that bugged me about the movie, other than I, you know, other than the fact that it's set in 1929, and that really shouldn't have made a difference. I don't know why this was in black mm. and white. It, I mean, it worked for film noirs of the 40s and 50s, but this isn't really a film noir. It's well, it's not. It's a comedy. And by this point, it's 1959. I mean, you've got Marilyn Monroe in her prime, all these great locations, beach locations and everything, and just a lot of fun action. What the F, Billy, Billy Wilder? Just make it in color. I don't know why he made this a black and white movie. I don't know, if, I don't movie, know if he ever made one in color. That, 
I think that might just be his Maybe. comfort zone. But but he's also notorious yeah, for leaving yeah. his comfort zone. So yeah, I kind of agree. Yeah. yeah. So so that kind of bugged me, but but I did uh, I did I did really like it. It's got all the sort of wit and, and cleverness in the dialogue that we've come to expect from Wilder. Except this time, he's almost freed from constraints of the previous genres, and now it's just great to see him mm-hmm. kind of unleashed just to do a straight comedy and just have fun with it. So that was really enjoyable. Yeah, between the wordplay, the physical comedy, and the great chemistry between the three leads, it's a damn near perfect comedy. Uh, it's the first time I've seen it. It's actually the first time I've seen a Marilyn Monroe film all the way through. I've caught cl- uh, mm-hmm. clips here and there of uh, Gentlemen Prefer Blondes and Seven Year Itch and things like that. But I really underestimated her talent. I never knew how genuinely talented Marilyn Monroe was, because uh, you know we always just see her as this cultural icon, the the pinup girl, the classic platinum blonde. But it is not easy to play dumb convincingly, <laughs> and uh, I love the conversation that she has with Jack Lemon in drag when one of the first times they they meet and I'm going to play a clip of that here. I'm not very bright, I guess. I wouldn't say that. Careless, maybe. No, just dumb. If I had any brains, it wouldn't be on this crummy train with this crummy girl's band. Well, why'd you take this job? I used to sing with male bands, but I can't afford it anymore. Have you ever been with a male band? Who? Me? That's what I'm running away from. I worked with six different ones the last two years. Oh, Rob. Rob? I'll say. You can't trust those guys. I can't trust myself. I have this thing about saxophone players, especially tennis sax. Really? I don't know what it is, but they just curdle me. All they have to do is play eight bars or come to me, my melancholy baby, and my spine turns to custard. I get goose pimply all over, and I come to them. That's all? Every time. No, I play tennis. Thanks. But you're a girl, thank goodness. Oh, yeah. That's why I joined this band. Safety first. Anything to get away from those bums. Yeah. You don't know what they're like. You fall for them. You really love them. You think this is going to be the biggest thing since the Graf Zeppelin. The next thing you know, they're borrowing money from you. They're spending it on other dames and betting on horses. You don't say. Then one morning you wake up, the guy's gone, the saxophone's gone, all that's left behind is a pair of old socks and a tube of toothpaste, all squeezed out. So you pull yourself together, you go on to the next job, the next saxophone player. It's the same thing all over again. You see what I mean? Not very bright. But yeah, she's just, (laughs) she's so sweet, but at the same time just absolutely smoking hot. And, uh... I love when the before she even shows up, we get that stereotypical wah 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 <laughs> with, the, with the trumpet in your first appearance, yeah. and yeah, that was just brilliant. And uh, the the interplay between Lemon and Curtis was masterful. It, it was a, a damn near perfect movie, and it's it. it it was hilarious, even today. It's it's hard for comedy to transcend generations sometimes, but this definitely definitely works. It's it's so true. There there's so many scenes and uh, just little set pieces that were just hilarious. And the whole 
the whole mobsters <laughs> convention at the end, that was unbelievably funny. The guy who's, the, who's sort of the Al Capone character is standing up. He's like, oh, we should all rise to remember seven members uh, uh, who couldn't be here on account of being rubbed out. <laughs> and they all like raised this. <laughs> everything about that was just so hilarious. I was laughing Yeah, it's like something off. Dave Chappelle would have come <laughs> yeah, up with exactly. or something like that. It was like way, way, way ahead of its time. Yeah. And you mentioned last time when we were um, reviewing, uh, I think it was in the last podcast when we were reviewing uh, Double Indemnity, how Billy Wilder, even for a guy for whom English was his second language, he he would use just idiomatic expressions and words that that it was hard to, that we didn't really know what they were. I had to look up what spats were I had to say I, I didn't know what the hell spats were I guess they're these <laughs> things that you would put on your shoes or something sort of mud guards for shoes but yeah. I, was like, I don't know what the hell a spat is <laughs> yeah uh, Jack Lemon is a master of comedy and we're gonna do The Apartment on uh, our 60s podcast and that's another Billy Wilder joint, and <laughs> you know he keeps showing up, but he damn well deserves it. I mean, we could have, we could not have left this movie off the list. No, one of the great things about Wilder, obviously, is and the reason why he keeps showing up on our on our podcast is that even though we're trying to do different kinds of movies and give an overview of different decades, he was such an adaptable guy. He went from right. different, he, so he did do movies that over the course of his career that covered a lot of the bases. And of course this movie has, you know, possibly the greatest, definitely one of the greatest final lines in movie history. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Let's go ahead and play that real quick. Uh, I'm a man. Well, nobody's perfect. But yeah, Joe E. Brown, who plays that guy, he damn near steals the show as the millionaire that's a, that's completely obsessed with the drag version of Jack Lemmon. He just plays this rich, um, ignorant in not in a mean spirited way, just this sort of blissfully ignorant yeah. doofus. He's <laughs> so good. And I mean, this this story has been done time and time again. I think most notably with uh, the with white chicks and uh, uh, Terry Crews. Please basically don't plays put this the, in the category of white chicks. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm just saying, like uh, you know, this this permeates culture in such a way that like you know Terry Crews basically plays the Joey Brown character. That's true. That's true. And we, we we've seen dudes in drag be hit on by other straight supposedly straight guys for ever since this came out i'm not putting white chicks in the same category <laughs> so i'm like it hot but just off the top of my head this this trope has been done so to death that you know it's it's still relevant and still funny to some people i didn't like white chicks by the way. <laughs> <laughs> i just couldn't get over the the, the makeup that just, oh, just creeped me out the whole yeah, thing so yeah. i couldn't really watch it but yeah, it's uh, you're right. It's it's pretty much a a, a, a perfect comedy and uh, another Billy Billy Wilder classic. Yeah, and uh, you know, probably be considered problematic today in some regards. But 
you know, whatever. Fuck it. <laughs> I'm not. I'm not buying into that with this one just because it was so genuinely hilarious, even though it was uh, damn near 60 years ago. Yeah. All right, so let's move on to our final movie of the 1950s that we're going to talk about, and that is Ben-Hur. So settle in. We're going to be talking about this for the next four hours, the length of... No, just kidding. (laughs) (laughs) Ben-Hur is an MGM production that premiered November 18th, 1959. The backstory on this is that MGM was in financial trouble at the time with the, the legislation that caused these big studios to break up and the end of the studio system. Uh, splitting up the monopolies of her production and distribution. It was really messing with MGM's business model, uh, perhaps above all the other studios, because they had a massive theater chain as part of their company and some other things. So they took a big gamble. They they saw the success that Paramount had had with another sa- uh, sword and sandal epic remake of a silent film with the, the Ten Commandments, and they decided to try it themselves with a remake of the 1925 film Ben-Hur. It had the largest budget and largest sets of any film produced up to that point. It was directed by William Wilder, who was... We've mentioned him before, but we haven't done one of his movies before. He was by far one of the most successful and well-regarded filmmakers of the 40s and 50s. And the film stars, of course, Charlton Heston. And he has another biblical epic following his turn as Moses in the Ten Commandments. The script was written by and credited to Carl Thunberg, but actually had a number of different writers and went over numerous revisions. Uh, one, one of the uncredited writers, in fact, was uh, Gore Vidal, the, the famous author. Mm. It quickly became the second highest grossing movie of all time after its release, trailing Only Gone with the Wind. And it's still in the top 15 when, when adjusted for inflation. It was nominated for 12 Academy Awards and won an unheard of 11, uh, a mark which has only been when been matched by Titanic and uh, Lord of the Rings Return of the King since. It, applies, uh, it appears on numerous AFI lists, including ranks of number 72 on the top 100 movies list, list and number two on the epic movies list. So what is the story of Ben-Hur? Ben-Hur tells the story of a wealthy Jewish prince who is betrayed and sentenced to slavery in a Roman galley by his former childhood best friend, Masala, who is currently in charge of the Roman legion in Judea. But after saving the life of a Roman in a naval battle, Ben-Hur eventually makes his way back to Judea where he challenges Masala in a dangerous chariot race where Masala dies. But Ben-Hur still has trouble finding peace, constantly searching for his long-lost mother and sister until he finds both, and as well as a rising star in the prophet game at the time <laughs> who's about to have his own run-in with Roman authorities. Dun, 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 you can guess who that is. Jesus. Um, so that's pretty much Ben-Hur in a nutshell. What did you think of it, Zach? I'm surprised you were able to sum it up that quick. I congratulate, <laughs> I congratulate you, Martin. <laughs> Although that is basically the story. I mean, there it's damn near a four-hour movie, but uh, I'm not going to say not a lot happens, but not a whole lot happens. <laughs> uh, I actually really enjoyed it. Uh, again. This is a recurring theme in our historical uh, retrospect on these uh, movies. 
this is another one that was shown to me in high school. <laughs> I don't know why. <laughs> it has nothing to do with actual history. I mean, you know, I think it can be agreed that, yes, Jesus was an actual person. But as, you know, as far as watching it in a history class, <laughs> I don't know what the fuck was going on there. <laughs> So yeah, I fell asleep. I, I fell asleep with my head on the on my high school desk for most of this the first time around. So this is uh, basically a fresh watch for me, and I really enjoyed it, especially since I am older, wiser. I know the historical context. I'm a lot more familiar with the Bible than I was, even though I'm not particularly religious. And I thought it was really inspiring. I thought uh, Charlton Heston did a great job. I thought the set pieces were absolutely fucking incredible, especially for their time. And uh, while the uh, the battles with the the galleys was obviously you know used with models and little tiny flare guns shooting at each other, the chariot race is obviously what put this what puts this uh, above and beyond. And I was absolutely fucking blown away by the chariot race. Yeah, the the chariot race is is for me the the main reason to watch this movie. Uh, I wasn't as bullish on the whole movie as you were. I think mm-hmm. I think you can basically watch the chariot race and the naval battle, and that's pretty much all you need to watch of this movie. Mm-hmm. But the chariot race is incredible, and. Yeah, let's let's just talk about that for a second. The the the, yeah, the please, effort yeah. that it took for them to to make that in the in the production of this, they had a thousand quarrymen digging out a quarry just for almost a year just to make the damn set for that chariot race, mm. which is which is pretty incredible. They had uh, thousands and thousands, literally tens of thousands of extras they hired for for some of these sequences. Just you're right. Just the the scale and and the grandeur and the the production of this was was beyond anything that we've seen before, and we'll probably ever ever likely see again. I mean, today they'd have they'd oh, yeah. have about forty extras in the background and then just CGI the rest of them. So yeah, of course that absolutely it's 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 incredible. It deserves to be seen to be seen for that alone. And it was really compelling too because. Uh, it must, I forgot to go back and do a time mark on it, but it seemed like it lasted a good 15 minutes, the whole race. And every time I thought this was going to be the last lap, they do a great job of doing the little lap markers where they tear the the fish down and, you know, they like ding, ding, ding for, for every lap. And I'm like, Oh my God, they're only, (laughs) they're only three laps through. And yeah, the stunt work was absolutely incredible. The the part where uh, Ben Hur's chariot jumps over the wreckage of another chariot, and the stuntman is able to catch himself and fall back onto the chariot was one one of the most impressive stunts I've ever seen in my entire Apparently life. Apparently, that wasn't intended. It was <laughs> he, yeah, he, he yeah. flew off um, and grabbed hold. And then they decided to keep it and use it because they thought it was so, so incredible. So then after that, they they went and filmed that part where you see Heston kind of underneath the chariot and trying to haul himself back mm. up onto it. But that actually wasn't an in, intended stunt. It just it just kind of happened, which is even more incredible in a way. And it, yeah, it was just so incredibly epic to get upwards of twenty horses to 
just act in sync all at once without anybody just being <laughs> ruthlessly murdered by those horses was just a, just a sight to behold. And uh, speaking of the horses, I think they were some of the best actors in <laughs> in the movie because uh, uh, Ben Hur's four white horses were just <laughs> like really yeah they were good animal actors. They all had their own little personalities when he was like nuzzling them before before the race. And yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm anybody that can have a way with animals. I'm always giving a thumbs up to <laughs> True. Yeah, no, the, the horses are great. And, and just the whole movie, it's a pretty clear blueprint for future, uh, Academy award winner gladiator. <laughs> just, yeah. it, it kind of follows the, the exact same plot. My, my main problem with the movie is that it's just, it's definitely too long. And not only is there probably too much in there, but, they could have pared down a lot of the scenes. Some of the scenes drag out way too long. Like we didn't need that as much as you like the stuff with the animals. We didn't need that whole bit with that dude's weird obsession with his horses when he brings them into the tent. I know that, that just kind of went off the rails. Oh, oh okay. <laughs> well, hold, hold on. Hold on a second. I'm going to have to disagree with you real quick <laughs> okay. because I think as much as, a, as much as a problem that I have with, brown face you know we're graduating from black face to brown yeah. face <laughs> now it's in the 50s yeah. but i thought i thought hugh griffith as uh chic Irdim was my favorite character of the entire movie so anytime he was on screen i was enjoying myself <laughs> okay okay i just thought it was too much and my main my main issue with it is that i will say the whole jesus subplot just seemed really tacked on I mean, look, I, I know, mm. I know it's in the book and it was in the original movie, but the filmmakers can choose what they what they want in their own adaptation. And I don't know. I guess at no point in the filming did they think to themselves, "Oh, well, let's see, our film's already at three hours long. Yeah, why don't we just end it after the climax?" No, instead they like <laughs> they added this whole extra bit. I, th- I think what probably happened is after the success of the Robe and the Ten Commandments, two other big, massive biblical epics, MGM thought, you know, people must really like those biblical stories, so let's just give them more <laughs> Jesus. The, the, the last half hour, I just kept thinking, I, I don't know, just end it. We, we already know the story of the crucifixion. We don't, I don't know, it, it kind of just really had me pining for the life of Brian. Just the, the, it just Yes, yes, I do, <laughs> I do agree with that, because I, I was thinking of the life of Brian through much of this movie, <laughs> because... It's kind of a similar story. Like Jesus is always in the background, never actually shown. And <laughs> I even said out loud to myself when uh, Jesus was doing the Sermon on the Mount, I was like, "Blessed be the cheesemakers." <laughs> the cheesemakers. <laughs> anyway, it just sort of seemed like they were trying to combine two movies into yeah. one. Almost, I don't know. The 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 biblical aspect to to me seemed a little a little tacked on. It was. It basically was Gladiator with part of the Passion of the Christ thrown yeah. in there, for, and, I, and I, it didn't well, quite work for me, and it just made it seem. Really I did like long. the creative choice that they made to never really show Jesus's face like straight up. Um, you know, when when we saw him at the beginning, it was always from behind with his perfectly conditioned hair. 
so, so that's how you know it's Jesus. <laughs> yeah, it's true. Yeah. <laughs> this man who's just come from the salon, yeah. oh, it's going to be Jesus. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I will say, and this might be a controversial take, and, and Charlton Eston won his only Oscar for this, and he's recognized as a legend of the screen, so it may seem a little strange to say this. I'm not a huge fan mm-hmm. of his acting. I, for, for me, you can always see him acting. He, he always seems a little wooden. There's nothing really natural about it. It's like he's he's trying too hard. I, I don't know. It's he's all right, and he plays these these sort of bigger, larger than life characters, I guess. But yeah, I'm just I'm not a not a huge fan. Yeah, I'll definitely agree with you there. He's uh, he's definitely from the old school. Whereas when we talk about James Dean and Marlon Brando, Mar- Mar- Marlon Brando. They are from the new school. Like they're very understated and stoic, while Charlton Heston is way over the top, like something you'd see in a stage play. And you know, I I, I enjoyed this movie. I like a good revenge uh, story. I like a good sword and sandals epic, better than most. And uh, I I think I think it belongs on the AFI Top 100 list. Just because of the scale, and scale. I think so. Just for the production right. alone, I, I would agree. But with I will agree with you that Charlton Heston is not the best actor, especially as we move forward. Well, one thing I did take away from this movie, though, it's uh, one one possible danger of growing a big beard as as we're both doing during this quarantine period. I have to say, if I ever get into a battle while trying to board a, a Roman galley. It's it's real danger that some guy just might shove a flaming torch in my face and set oh my, my beard God. on fire. I- <laughs> that was the one time I just laughed my ass off at that part of the movie. I'm- As Charlton Heston's <laughs> fighting back, just light the dude's beard on fire. I'm actually glad you brought that up, though, because that scene was incredibly violent for its time. I mean, you have people with like bones showing after their arms are chopped off, and you know you have legs getting chopped off, and like you said, people just getting torches shoved in their face. Like, oh I, I, yeah, that that really got me into it because I was kind of in and out until that uh, galley battle. But after that, I was like, all right, all right, all right, we got some Ben Hur going on, yeah. <laughs> one uh, one final note on that uh, on that chariot sequence. And I, for some reason, I didn't write it down, so I'm going to quickly try to look it up as I'm as I'm as I'm talking. But uh, William Wilder, because there was just so much going on there, um, he he didn't do it all himself as as the director. So he so he had a bunch of assistant directors take certain parts. Um, and one of the uh, so what he did basically uh, is he is he. Um, he directed all the the big parts, so that the the stage, mm. the 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 staging of the you know the the horses and the chariots marching around, and and everything else, and and all the big audience and the reaction and the introductions and the big celebrations afterwards, all that kind of stuff he directed, and then the actual action of the chart sequences he sort of farmed out to a few other directors. Mm. One of whom, interestingly enough, as I was as I was researching this, was Sergio Leone, mm. because of course this was all filmed in Italy, 
and he was there and available. So he actually was involved in in being an assistant director and filming a lot of those really specific action sequences in the chariot sequence. Yeah, that's dope. I had no idea about that. So that takes us to the end of our 10 movies for, for the 1950s. All right. And here's one of our newer segments. Obviously, this was really hard to whittle down so many great movies into just 10 to talk about. So we are going to talk about. So we're going to start talking about five movies every time now in this podcast from now on. Um, and again, from as we get into the seventies and eighties, it's probably going to be hard to narrow down the who missed the cut of who missed the cut even right. because these, just, these choices are going to become increasingly difficult. But one of the movies that missed the cut for us this time was high noon from 1952 and it missed the cut for a couple of reasons. One, we're trying to limit ourselves uh, again to to genres, and we already had a, a Western in Shane. So why did we choose Shane over this? A few different reasons, but one of them is uh, High Noon is a black and white film. Not that that's a problem necessarily, but Westerns going forward from here, the, the expansive panorama and the countryside almost became as important to, to big epic westerns as the story itself. And that's something that was really on display in Shane as, as kind of the way westerns were going to be moving forward. And, and that wasn't uh, an aspect of High Noon, which is recorded in the, in the old sort of letterbox style still, and it was black and white. So for that reason, Shane seems like a better choice than High Noon. Yeah, that was a struggle for me. I probably yeah, because I I think I like High Noon better than Shane, just because of uh, Gary Cooper and Grace Kelly. But that being said, I think Shane was a better choice to discuss in depth, just because of the reasons you said. And now we're going to Roman Holiday in 1953. It's a romantic comedy starring Audrey Hepburn and Gregory Peck, and while it's critically acclaimed and stars two of the biggest actors of the day it just really simply hasn't had the lasting cultural impact that the mo- that the movies we chose did the 50s were a titanic decade for the movie industry and we just really couldn't squeeze this one in at the expense of the ones that we chose yeah, it's it, it, it's a tough omission in some ways. For one thing, it's it's one of the greatest romantic comedies of all time. And for another thing, it's influential as a romantic comedy in that so many romantic comedies since have had this sort of oh the rich girl mm-hmm. fall you know even all those, those crappy Netflix ones that they're making these days. It's all, right. <laughs> uh, you know sometimes the role is reversed and it's a rich prince instead of a rich or whatever. But it's the rich person who who slums it with the commoner and then really falls in love that that kind of story. So it is fairly influential in that way. But yeah, I get it. Didn't didn't quite meet the threshold of of breaking it in. It's kind of unfortunate for Audrey Hepburn because. In the 60s, one of her most famous movies is also going to miss the cut for us and probably end up in that who made the cut, uh, who, may, who who missed the cut segment. So, sorry, Audrey Hepburn, I, I guess we're just uh, not really going to be able to fit you in. The next movie is Godzilla, 1954. Look, Godzilla is definitely influential, it spawned 
a million <laughs> damn sequels. There's so many different Godzilla movies. It keeps being remade every so often. And it does have that interesting element to it, which is, it was timely in the 50s because it sort of played on fears of the effects of radiation after the dropping of the atomic bombs. But at the end of the day, it's a monster movie, and we, we already monster movies had, had already happened before that. King Kong, famously in 1933, which we already uh, talked about. So it just didn't seem to be important enough to, to knock off any of the other ones on our list. Right. And then we're going to go to The Seventh Seal in 1957. This is a Swedish historical fantasy movie directed by Igmar Bergman. It takes place during the height of the Black Plague and tells the story of a medieval knight who plays a game of chess with the Green Reaper for his own life. I've never seen it, but it seems like it's totally in my wheelhouse as a lover of medieval fantasy. It established Bergman as a phenomenal director, and the movie is widely considered to be the best film to ever come out of Sweden, but again, it just didn't quite meet our criteria for picking the best movies we want to cover in depth on the Century series. Yeah, it's and I have seen it, and it is an incredible film. It, it's largely just a, a dialogue, the, the entire film, but it's it's so well done. It just, and, and great acting. The, the problem is... It wasn't really a movie that sort of typifies the 50s and some of the things we were talking about in this decade. Probably not. It's a great movie, but yeah, as you said, didn't maybe quite meet the criteria. And the final film in our Who Missed the Cut segment, Bridge on the River Kwai uh, from 1957. Look, this is just a great movie with one of the great performances of all time by Alec Guinness. But again, it's, it's not necessarily groundbreaking or influential or specific to the time it's just a fantastic great movie but doesn't necessarily rise to some of those other criteria that we're looking for when we're trying to uh, create this this century series right yeah you're absolutely right obi-wan kenobi i mean Alleginis is uh, fantastic <laughs> in this movie <laughs> And uh, yeah, it's a it's a great morality piece. It's it's uh, perfectly acted, perfectly directed. Uh, the set pieces are amazing. Uh, William Holden puts in a great performance. He was I mean, we talked about him during uh, Sunset Boulevard. But yeah, like you said, it just doesn't really typify the '50s and the way that we are looking for when we're talking about our Century series. All right, so now let's move on to our award-eligible segment that you all know and love, Either Or. Either Or. Let's start off with Better Dancer. Now that we've, in the last, uh, in the last pod- podcast on the last uh, decade, we, we saw a movie with Fred Astaire. Oh, no, sorry, that was two decades ago. And now we, we've seen Gene Kelly. So, Zach, Either Or, Better Dancer, Fred Astaire or Gene Kelly? It's all right. We all lose track of time. We don't even know what decade it is anymore. <laughs> but uh, I'm going to go with uh, Fred Astaire. Uh, it wasn't really hard for me to pick this one either. Uh, I think Gene Kelly is probably more talented, but Gene Kelly wasn't even the best dancer in his own movie, as we discussed last episode with uh, Singing in the Rain. I think Fred Astaire made things look more effortless. I think he was more relatable. He didn't uh, he, like he uh, he had a certain charm, 
that wasn't like that movie star charm, that classic movie star charm. He was just kind of like the everyman that happened to be a phenomenal dancer and uh, you know, uh, the partner makes the dance most of the time and and uh, yeah, Ginger Rogers is just uh, so much better than uh, than Debbie Reynolds. Than uh, Debbie uh, Reynolds. And, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so that's my case. I'm I'm going to agree with you, maybe for slightly different reasons. For me, it's and certainly I'm no dance expert. You're not going to find me as a judge on so you think you can dance. But for <laughs> me, it's it's who seems uh, who, they're both incredible dancers. Gene's Kelly, Gene Kelly's dancing seems more like something that a lot of people could learn how to do if they really put in the work and were talented and and really tried to learn the steps and everything. Whereas Fred Astaire, to me, he almost doesn't seem, his dancing, not his acting, but his dancing, doesn't seem relatable because it just doesn't seem possible. He's just, he flows with, with such inhuman grace almost around the dance floor that there, there's to me there's nobody who can really do what Fred Astaire can do whereas there are others who can sort of do the, the same kind of thing Gene Kelly does so for me that's that's why I would choose Fred Astaire here yeah and I think I speak for both of us when I say that we enjoyed swing time more than singing in the rain true yeah so there you go <laughs> all right better Jimmy Stewart early comedy or late thriller this, uh, for me, isn't that tough, but mostly because I first became aware of Stuart more from his early comedy stuff, and then only later started looking into his, his uh, collaborations with Hitchcock and some of the darker turns he took as characters uh, later on in his career. So I think, you know, I kind of first fell in love with Jimmy Stewart's uh, acting and everything with with movies like Mr. Smith Goes to Washington and and um, and uh, Philadelphia Story. So, although he, he he you know his performance in Vertigo, he does play a really good creepy guy. He his comedy is just so brilliant. I, I've got to go with the the early comedy Stewart. Yeah, I'm gonna have to agree. Um, my first introduction to Jimmy Stewart was actually in the movie Fievel Goes West. <laughs> when when he played the dog sheriff named Wiley Burp. And that was his last film role. And it always makes me kind of sad when I watch that movie now because his voice sounds so frail. But um, anyway, I'm going to go with early comedy as well. I think his collaborations with Hitchcock are f- fantastic. But I think that you know, you could throw some other actors in his place and they would have done a fine job. And, but when, yeah, when you really get down to it, Jimmy Stewart is a fantastic comedian while bringing the drama to it. Like his performance in Philadelphia story was amazing. His, his drunk acting is unparalleled. Um, He's just a naturally funny guy, and his voice is so soothing and endearing to people. And 
I think he, he he does a great job when he's in his thriller stage, but I think that's just him trying to show off his range, which he does. But I think his natural arena is comedy. All right. So, either or. Better portrayal of existential angst. <laughs> either Brando in On the Waterfront or Dean in Rebel Without a Cause. Well, I think... On the Waterfront is a much better movie, and Brando puts on a better performance. In uh, regards to this question, existential angst, I think James Dean actu- actually completely embodies that. He's the personification of teenage angst in the 50s. Damn it, we're going to agree again. <laughs> I thought this one, we might we might get some disagreement. I might get you to say Brando, because Brando's Brando. But no, James Dean was just... He's just, even though, as you pointed out, it seemed unnatural for it to be him, he's just such a tortured character in this. And, you know, maybe in his real life he was kind of a tortured guy too, mm-hmm. uh, that he just, all that comes bubbling up in his performance. Uh, I, I thought he was incredible in Re- Rebel Without a Cause. All right, either or. Better Billy Wilder, dark film noir or comedy Wilder? Okay, this one's actually tough because yeah. he does both so well. Uh, I'm, uh, it's I'm I'm all set. I was all set to actually say dark film noir Wilder just because he he goes dark really well, especially in the two that we've that we've looked at in this series with uh, Double Indemnity and and then Sunset Boulevard. Just how dark he gets, not just in terms of of actions on screen, but in terms of what's going on in the, in the sort of souls of these characters. But I'm tipping the balance and this is cheating a little bit because I'm looking forward, but in the sixties, which we're going to, we're going to do the apartment. And that's one of my, that's one of my favorite films. And that's, although that can get dark as well, it's, it's, it's really more of a comedy. And so I think I'm going to go with comedy, Billy Wilder. All right. Well, you kind of cheated <laughs> <laughs> with what we've done so far in regards to the fifties. I love the apartment too. Don't get me wrong, but um, I'm going to go with dark film noir just because uh, he, he finds ways to inject wit and comedy into these dark movies in a way that a lot of noir doesn't. They're just like really stoic, really serious, but Again, I'll say it till my face turns blue. For somebody whose first language is not English, this guy was one of the greatest screenwriters of all time, and he's a pioneer in both noir and comedy. But at the end of the day, with I'm not taking the apartment into account. So <laughs> I'm gonna I'm gonna go with noir. <laughs> all right, so I cheated. Finally, either or, more liberating development, the end of the Hayes Code, or the end of the studio system? This is also tough. This is a good question. But I feel just overall, for the art form of filmmaking, I have to say the end of the Hayes Code. Because, yeah, the studio system shackled a lot of great artists but they still got to work and they still got to express themselves before the Hayes Code came along. And mm, 
Yeah, I mean, the Hays Code just put so many restrictions, and lifting that brought in the rating system, and, you know, it's it's always best when people can self-censor, and you should be able to produce any kind of film you want with any kind of content you want, you know, as long as it's not a snuff film or <laughs> something like that, as long as you're not breaking existing laws, then... Uh, yeah, getting rid of the Hays Code completely opened up the field, and the studio system was restrictive, but I don't think it was anywhere near as restrictive as the Hays Code. I'm going to disagree. Okay, <laughs> And uh, I agree that this is, this is a tough question, and, and both of them obviously were incredibly liberating developments for, for, the, for the movie industry. But to me, the end of the studio system, not only did it break up the studios and, and the way their business model worked, but freeing up actors and actresses and directors to be able to go off and do whatever projects they wanted, that, that also made such an impact. I mean, think about the way actors and actresses, especially beforehand, they were tied to whatever studio they had made, a, they had made a, an agreement with. They basically had to do the films that they were assigned to do. And... If they wanted to do something from another studio, the studio had to loan them out and get money back. I mean, I guess right. much the same way that that high-level soccer players can sometimes be loaned out in exactly. Europe right now. Yeah. But it's really—it was really just a the 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 studios really owned them and owned what they could do. But even more so than the actors and actresses, I think allowing the directors and production companies to break off and have more freedom also led to a lot of part of it. Sure, in terms of content was was the end of the Hayes Code. But a lot of it was these sort of auteur directors, especially as we get into the the 60s, later 60s and the 70s, having the freedom to to choose their projects and, and go after who they wanted to be in their, their pictures and make the kinds of films they wanted to make. I think that was an incredibly liberating development. That all came from the end of the, end of the studio system. So that would be my choice for that. But I, I fully... Endorse your arguments for the Hayes Code as well. A good riddance to good riddance to the Hayes Code. Yeah, ditto. I mean, both things were great for the development of cinema. All right, so who won the decade? Director. All right, for me, this comes down to basically three directors, and, and probably no other candidates for the for the nineteen fifties. One is Alfred Hitchcock. Uh, just to name some of his biggest movies from the decade. Strangers on a Train, Dial M for Murder, Rear Window, To Catch a Thief, The Man Who Knew Too Much, Vertigo, North by Northwest. That's just a crazy decade. Mm -hmm. Billy Wilder, our old friend, who in the decade had such big movies as Sunset Boulevard, Sabrina, Seven Year Itch, The Spirit of St. Louis, Witness for the Prosecution, and Some Like It Hot. Incredible decade for him as well. And Kurosawa, who we already talked about, who had Rashomon, Incredibly influential film. Ikiru, Seven Samurai, and The Hidden Fortress. Famously, uh, one of the main influences for, for the plot of Star Wars later on. So those, are, for me, were the three candidates. And I think in the end, I'm going to have to go to Hitchcock. Okay. Hitchcock just had such a monster decade. And even if his films weren't always as commercially successful as some of the others, he just influenced so much the way people looked at movies and, and the way they developed tension in movies and, and all those sorts of things and really helped create and further different kinds of genres that, for me, it's got to be Hitchcock, although the other two definitely had great candidacies as well. 
Yeah, it came down to the exact same three for me, and I'm choosing Billy Wilder. <laughs> <laughs> Just because, uh, you know, he was great in the 40s, but uh, we're, you know, we're doing this who won the decade. He was great in the 40s, he's great in the 50s, and we're going to see that he was great in the 60s. But the fact that he really changed as a director, pull it, like I said earlier, pulling that 180 from showing us that he could do the dark, really just gritty, dirty noir, and then just flipping it on its head and doing this farcical romantic comedy with the love triangle between Marilyn Monroe, Jack Lemmon, and uh, Tony Curtis, really shows you the talent that he has. Like, I was leaning towards Hitchcock at first, but... I'm going to get crucified for this, <laughs> but he's kind of one note oh. in a way just because he always does thrillers with a twist and, you know, Kurosawa, I've only seen seven Samurais, so I couldn't really make a call there. But the fact that we've already done three Billy Wilder movies and we're going to do another one next time, uh, it, uh yeah, it's Billy Wilder for me. Okay. Who won the decade actor? It's Brando. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Not, not much discussion needed here. He just really changed the game. Uh, some other guys had decent decades, like Jimmy Stewart and William Holden. James Dean just simply didn't have enough credits. It, it's Brando. Yeah. He made method acting the new normal. And like you said, totally, totally changed the game. So, actress. This was a tough one because there didn't necessarily seem to be a lot of actresses that really stood out. Some actresses had good decades. Grace Kelly, for instance, before Mm -hmm. she decided she wanted to run off and become a princess. Um, You can't blame her. Yeah, (laughs) that's fine. Uh, Doris Day, who we haven't talked about at all, was actually one of the top box office stars for a few years in a row in the 50s. But for me, in terms of who won the decade, you think about the 50s, it's got to be Marilyn Monroe. Uh, not, not 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 only for for her act. I mean, she she did have some uh, great acting performances, Seven Year Itch, and and uh, some like it hot. Uh, but just also as a as an overall cultural icon. I mean, for better or for worse, she probably made Playboy magazine a thing when oh, yeah. when Hefner put her on his first cover. Uh, so she just kind of typifies the fifties. It, it's got to be Marilyn Monroe for me. Yeah, she appeared in a staggering 25 movies in this decade. Uh, I picked her not just for her prodigious filmography, but for obviously for the lasting impact she's had on pop culture almost 60 years after her death in 1962. And like I said, uh, when we were talking about Some Like It Hot, she wasn't just a pretty face. She had real acting talent. Oh, she, yeah, she was, she was really good. So, okay, so then the next one then, uh, which genre won the decade? Uh, Western. Uh, uh, John Wayne was at the peak of his career at this time, and since we're leaving searchers off the list in the 60s, I don't think we're ever going to have a chance to talk about John Wayne, the Duke, but he, I mean, yeah, he was one of the most lucrative stars of his time. He also happened to be one of the main snitches in the uh, <laughs> for the uh, the Red Scare in the Hollywood blacklist, and 
you know, he tried to reconcile it, saying that he was trying to do the right thing, but in reality, he was just kind of snitching on it, all of his, <laughs> all of his friends. So that kind of tarnishes his legacy, but nevertheless, we can't go through this whole Century series without at least mentioning John Wayne. And uh, obviously, we have Gary Cooper. They were John Wayne and Gary Cooper were the staples of the Western genre, but everybody were everybody was dipping their toes into there because everybody from Gregory Peck to Jimmy Stewart starred in multiple westerns in this decade. Not to mention, it also dominated TV at the time with everything from Gunsmoke to The Adventures of Rin Tin Tin. Every kid in America had cap guns and played cowboys and Indians growing up, and it just completely permeated society as a genre. Yeah, you're, you're right. It's, it's definitely Western. Uh, there, there are a couple of other genres, just straight drama is starting to rise a little bit here in the 50s. We, we saw it in some of the movies we talked about on the waterfront, Rebel Without a Cause, 12 Angry Men, I think would be categorized pretty much as straight mm-hmm. dramas. So we st- start to see those kind of movies rise that aren't that don't really neatly fit into any other genre. But but it's still definitely a Western in terms of... And this is before we get into the turn into Spaghetti Western, which we'll talk about a little bit in the 60s. But Westerns, you're right, it, it kind of... The, the image of the, the cowboy is, was everywhere. That's what all the kids were, were wanting to be when, when, uh, uh, who were growing up in that time. It's, yeah, it's definitely the big, the big cultural winner for the decade in terms of genre. And the last one for who won the decade. What studio won the decade, Martin? Okay, yeah, so studio, and this is a time when, when the studios are being broken up. They, they're starting to lose the power that they once had. But I think the, the studio that won the decade is Paramount. Mm. They had, just to name a few of the movies they had, they had Miss Sunset Boulevard, Best Picture nomination, A Place in the Sun, Best Picture nomination, The Greatest Show on Earth, Best Picture winner, Shane, Best Picture nomination, Roman Holiday, Best Picture nomination, Rear Window. Basically all of Hitchcock's films from, from this time were, were under Paramount's uh, distribution. Uh, Ten Commandments, also Best Picture nomination. So, and those are just kind of the the Oscar-nominated movies. But Paramount really just had a solid decade from from start to finish. So I think it's got to be them. Okay. I'm going with my main man, Walt Disney. Disney Studios. Because this is, first of all, this was his last decade of being alive. So he worked on every single movie here. I'm going to list them off. Cinderella, Alice in Wonderland, Peter Pan, Lady and the Tramp, and Sleeping Beauty, all within a 10-year period, and those are all considered to be Disney classics, just staples that no kid in the Western world has grown up without watching. And while, you know, the the, uh, critical acclaim wasn't there because everybody kind of fell off animation and they got kind of tired of the whole Disney racket in the uh after the forties probably. But uh yeah, between those one, two, three, four, six movies, that's a hell of a decade. It's a, yeah, it's a good decade. I'll I'll agree with that, but uh I, I still I still put Paramount in terms of who won it. No, I still put Disney. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so 
that's that is the conclusion of our coverage of the 1950s, and we're moving on to the 60s. What are we going to be covering over the next two podcasts, Martin? Okay, so here are once again these choices are becoming increasingly difficult. But here are the 10 movies we're going to talk about in the 1960s. The Apartment from 1960, To Kill a Mockingbird, 1962, Lawrence of Arabia, 1962, Eight and a Half, 1963, Goldfinger, James Bond, (laughs) 1964, The Good, the Bad, and the Ugly, 1966, The Graduate from 1967, 2001, A Space Odyssey from 1968, Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid from 1969, and finally, Easy Rider from 1969. Yep, so as always, we thank you for listening. You can catch us anywhere that you listen to podcasts now. iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, SoundCloud, you name it, we got it. We are a real-ass fucking podcast now. (laughs) I still don't know what Stitcher is, but uh, if that's... What floats your boat? Go, go to it. Listen oh, that's to my, us, that's um, my main go-to, son. <laughs> oh, yeah. um, Spotify all the way. All right. So, and as always, you can uh, follow us on Facebook at Unsolicited Film Reviews. Check us out at unsolicitedfilmreviews.com. Check us out on Instagram at unsolicited underscore film underscore reviews. You can follow me personally at Zach T. Miller on Instagram. You can follow me at J. Martin Cook, Cook with an E. And we will see you in the 1960s. Summer of Love is coming up on the Unsolicited Film Reviews Podcast Century Series. You've been listening to the Unsolicited Film Reviews Podcast, hosted by Zach Miller and Martin Cook, with original music by Martin Cook and original podcast artwork by Dan Ohm. Sponsored by No One. See you next time.